April 16, 1983. Tel Aviv, Israel. Rachel Hassan, artistic director at Israel's prestigious L.A. Meyer Museum, is drinking her morning coffee when she gets an alarming phone call. Staff at the museum frantically explain that there's been a break-in and insists she comes to work as soon as possible. Hassan abandons her breakfast and rushes in. She perhaps expects to find a few smashed windows, some ornaments missing from an easily accessed collection, or maybe even money stolen out of the museum's safe. But nothing can prepare her for what she sees. As Hassan elbows past security guards, she enters the museum's timepiece collection room. But it looks nothing like the room she knows so well. Far from the elegant, high-ceilinged space boasting vast arrays of glittering clocks, watches, and timepieces, is a room that feels more like a frat house. Dirty candy wrappers litter the wooden floor, Coca-Cola cans drip onto the carpets, and cigarette packs are scattered throughout. Close to the door, cables and wires intertwine like snakes, leading to an overturned microphone and abandoned set of headphones. But most alarmingly of all, the glass cabinets are empty. The shelves that were abundant with the most expensive, precious timepieces from around the world just 12 hours ago are now entirely bare. Shadows from the early dawn sun pour through a window that's been carelessly left open and dance eerily on the naked shelves. Hassan looks around the chaotic room in horror. As smashed glass crunches beneath her feet, she counts that 106 different timepieces are missing. Each timepiece alone is worth thousands of dollars, some even millions. But there's one watch whose disappearance breaks Hassan's heart most of all. Marie Antoinette's magnificent pocket watch valued at approximately $30 million. The Mayer Museum is closed for the day as police and detectives swarm the area. Due to the astronomical value of what has been stolen, the internationally acclaimed investigator, Samuel Namias, arrives to lead the case. Namias finds numerous pieces of evidence scattered all over the confusing crime scene. DNA has been left on the microphone in Coca-Cola cans, the discarded candy wrappers show labels from all over Jerusalem, and the cigarette packs belong to four separate brands. Namias concludes with certainty that the heist was the work of at least three criminals. But although the DNA is run through the police's database, it doesn't match with any known thief. So without a list of suspects, Namias has no choice but to chase alleged sightings of the timepieces from Tel Aviv to Moscow and Switzerland. But all meet dead ends. The investigator can think of just one man with the skills to take on this seemingly impossible heist. Naman Diller, an Israeli thief known to frustrate the police with his unorthodox methods and ability to stay one step ahead. But Diller's innocence is proven by a reliable alibi. Official documentation shows that he was spending time in New York when the heist happened, over 5,000 miles from the crime scene. He's dropped as a suspect and gradually the trail runs cold. Antique collectors, art dealers, and horologists around the world try to solve the mystery. 
By all standards, the heist should have been impossible. How can over 100 internationally renowned timepieces vanish forever? And why would a thief steal items whose reputations ensure they cannot be sold? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of an infamous heist that stumped the world. It's about the loss of the priceless timepiece made for Marie Antoinette, an impossible break-in to Jerusalem's most prestigious museum. A skilled burglar who was able to outwit police and detectives for decades. It's about the global investigation to recover the precious timepieces. An oblivious wife who found herself in the midst of an international scandal. And it's about the mysterious return of the timepieces to the very museum they were stolen from. I'm Estefania Hakeman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright chloe blazer for brunch find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com with Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Marie Antoinette's pocket watch, known globally as the Queen, is a magnificent, sophisticated timepiece. Measuring 60 millimeters in diameter, its beautifully intricate clock face is protected by a clear crystal cover with bars and mechanisms made of solid gold. The watch itself is sheathed in sapphires, rubies, and diamonds. It's made from over 800 different parts and features 23 intricate complications, including a crystal dial, full perpetual calendar, jumping hour hand, metallic thermometer, and automatic winding device. It's the most expensive timepiece ever created by one of the world's greatest horologists, Abraham Louis Breguet. The Queen's international renowned rich history and glittering status as the most expensive watch in the world are certainly what make it so attractive to thieves. But a timepiece of this grandeur cannot be hidden forever. In 2006, 13 years after its disappearance, a humble antiques dealer in Tel Aviv receives a visitor who will change the future of horology forever. August 2006. 
The owner of an antique shop in Tel Aviv is closing his store when a heavily pregnant woman rushes in carrying a large bag. In a panic, the owner asks her to sit down, concerned that she shouldn't be rushing around or heaving heavy bags in her condition. He explains that the shop's closing for the night, but offers her a seat and a glass of water. The woman quickly brushes off his concerns. She's a lawyer on important business for a wealthy, anonymous client in the U.S. and is anxious to get started on her work. She explains that her client recently inherited a vast collection of timepieces from her late husband. The client believes them to be relatively valuable and would like a dealer to assess a select few before she tries to sell. The shop owner's attention is piqued. He often visits auction houses around the country to find new collections, but it's rare for an individual to come to him with personal antiques. After agreeing to take a look, the lawyer carefully draws small cardboard boxes from her bag and displays them neatly on the shop's counter. When she opens them, the antiques dealer is suffocated by shock. He desperately searches for words to say, but none come to him. His mouth is dry and his palms start to sweat. In front of him are the missing timepieces from the L.A. Mayer Museum. The dealer's eyes move automatically to the large golden and blue pocket watch glittering in the evening sun. By some small miracle on this dusty counter in Tel Aviv's outskirts, the queen has reappeared. However tempted he may be to purchase these priceless artifacts, the antiques dealer knows that they shouldn't be for sale. He telephones a friend from the Mayer Museum and explains the unbelievable situation he finds himself in. Over the next few months, legal staff from the museum go back and forth in negotiations with the American lawyer. Although the watches rightfully belong to the museum, the client refuses to give them back for free. You see, she somehow knows that the museum took an astronomical insurance payout for the loss of the watches. If they now contact the police about the timepiece's reemergence, they'll be obliged to repay the insurance money. It's a price that the Mayer Museum cannot come close to affording. Armed with this knowledge, the client holds the museum in checkmate and sells the collection to them for $40,000. Over half of the stolen collection is returned, and the queen is placed back in its esteemed position at the center of the timepiece room. Safely protected by new security systems, the magnificent watch twinkles behind reinforced glass. But of course, the mysterious return of these famous timepieces does not go unnoticed. Visitors begin to question where they came from, Art specialists wonder if they're fakes and journalists speculate dodgy black market deals. So, in August 2007, a police investigation begins. With cooperation from the museum, they're able to trace the payment to the anonymous client. Paperwork from the sale leads investigators to an account in California. The account belongs to a Miss Nil Shamrat, a Hebrew teacher at a Californian high school. This discovery is confusing, perhaps even underwhelming. After almost 30 years of failing to retrieve the artifacts, police expected they'd be outwitted by an infamously talented and extraordinary group of thieves. 
they certainly didn't expect the most wanted person in all of horology to be an aging high school teacher. However, after searching through databases and archives to find anything to link Shamrat to the crime, police stumble across a newspaper article from 2004. It announces the death of Naman Diller, one of Israel's most notorious and successful thieves. He survived by his wife, Nil Shamrat. Israeli and American police immediately travel to Shamrat's house in California, where they search her property and take her in for questioning. Her house is modest and nondescript. It doesn't look like the lavish home of an international thief. Police rifle through drawers, desks, and cupboards, searching any possible places the remaining timepieces could be hidden. Their search is successful. Around the house, they find numerous stolen clocks, musical boxes, and oil paintings from the Mayer Museum. At the bottom of Shamrat's closet, they even retrieve missing parts to some of the timepieces. Perhaps aware of the severity of the scandal she's inherited, Shamrat cooperates with the police and explains everything she claims to know. She tells police how Diller confessed about the stolen timepieces on his deathbed in 2004. He left all of them to her in his will and urged his wife to sell them to prevent an incriminating trail. It was following her dead husband's orders that Shamrat made contact with the lawyer and negotiated the sale back to the museum. Shamrat repeatedly pleads her innocence to the police. She insists that his deathbed confession was the first time she had ever heard about her husband's involvement in the heist. She swears she had no knowledge of his position as a global thief. He did things that were definitely criminal, Shamrat cries. But he was really very positive in so many instances. This long-awaited information finally gives police the facts they need to reopen the investigation and unravel the remaining questions surrounding the infamous heist of 1983. How had Diller broken into Jerusalem's most prestigious museum? Where had he stowed the precious timepieces? And why had he stolen them? To answer these questions, we have to travel back to a kibbutz in Jerusalem where the young thief grew up. Naman Diller was born in Jerusalem, 1939, to Polish parents who had little interest in their son. He was sent to a kibbutz where he grew up immersed in an equal and collective community. Wealth, possessions, and goods were all shared. But despite this utopian setting, Diller's childhood wasn't one of happiness. As a highly intelligent individual and quick learner, he stood out from the other children. He was skinny, small, and sensitive, traits that often made him an easy target for cruel bullying. By the time he left school, Diller had developed a passion for flying and was intent on training as a pilot in the Israeli Air Force. He was creative, daring, and responded well to pressure, so once again found himself top of the class. But his dreams of becoming a pilot didn't last. On his final test flight, fueled by an ambitious hunger for notoriety, Diller veered from his designated test route and flew over the kibbutz where he had grown up. He performed tricks and stunts to admiring crowds, reveling in how far he had come from the unloved skinny boy of his past. 
But this kind of creativity wasn't welcomed in the Air Force, and the reckless stunt saw him dismissed with immediate effect. However, Diller never lost the love for adrenaline and danger that flying had taught him. With his airborne dreams behind him, he embarked on a path that would make him infamous as a troublesome, unorthodox thief. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In 1967, Diller achieved his first moment of notoriety with the Israeli police. He spent five months digging a trench through the center of Tel Aviv from a local parking lot directly to one of the city's most expensive banks. When locals questioned him, he simply answered that he was an engineer working for the Tel Aviv government. This disguise seemed to work and his efforts aroused little suspicion. In the trench, Diller buried a 300-foot-long pipeline and filled it with oxygen canisters, which he used to fuel his portable cutting torch. On a summer night of that year, after hours of painful, silent work, Diller cut into the metal vaults and extracted $8,000 worth of jewelry, cash, and valuables from the bank. But his success was short-lived. He eventually became frustrated with a stiff door on one of the vaults, and his loud efforts to open it woke up neighbors who had been sleeping just feet above the crime. The police were called to the bank where they arrested Diller. But although they threw him behind bars, they never forgot the dedication and ingenuity of this thief who had almost succeeded in robbing one of Tel Aviv's most highly protected banks. The date is now January, 1983. 16 years have passed since Diller's arrest for the bank robbery, and he's continued the dangerous lifestyle of a thief. His days have been spent committing small-scale thefts which have simultaneously infuriated and amazed police with their creativity. Although Diller's achieved some sort of notoriety in Israel, he craves international attention. This thirst for recognition is perhaps what fuels his most challenging and infamous plan yet, the L.A. Mayor Museum heist. The L.A. Mayor Museum for Islamic Art is a tall, pink-bricked building situated just 100 meters from Israel's presidential residence. It's on one of the most heavily protected streets in the city, with security guards patrolling at all times of the day. The museum's three floors are filled with priceless artifacts, from ancient artwork and literature to beautiful ornaments and timepieces. It's the latter that captivates Diller, 
he knows that the museum's timepiece collection is like none other in the world. It contains watches coated in diamonds, clocks from royal households, a collection of Breguet's finest pieces, and of course, the magnificent pocket watch of Marie Antoinette. To steal this watch, one that's internationally loved and admired, would place Diller amongst the greatest thieves in history. Diller spends the next few months preparing for the heist. He begins by familiarizing himself with the museum. As he'll be conducting the theft in darkness, he needs its layout burned into his memory. He visits the museum regularly, finding out as much as he can about its security. He befriends guards to understand their working hours, studies the exits and entrances to different rooms, and traces any structures of the building that could be broken into. During these visits, Diller finds two pieces of valuable information. First, he sees a window leading directly from the street into the timepiece collection room. It has no active alarm system attached to it, so entrance through the window would be undetected. Situated about 10 feet from the ground, Diller would have to use a ladder to scale up the wall. But this isn't an issue. As a gifted pilot, he's not afraid of heights. The only problem the window presents is its size. At 27 inches across and 15 inches high, the window is impossibly thin. It would be hard to fit even a small child through. Diller imagines the strict and painful diet he'll have to embark upon to shrink his body to the optimum size. The second thing he discovers is the location of the guards' quarters. Their offices are adjacent to the timepiece collection room. Any sound from within either room would be detectable between the walls. Armed with this valuable information, Diller moves on to the next phase of his plan. It's now February 1983, and Diller's preparation for the heist is going well. He's already lost five pounds in weight in order to slip through the tiny window and has mapped out his entry into the museum. However, as a well-known thief throughout Israel, Diller is aware that he'll be on the police's suspect list if the heist succeeds. His next priority must be to forge a convincing alibi. So Diller buys a ticket to New York during the first week of February and flies there using a perfectly valid and legal visa. However, he stays in New York for just 12 days before flying back to Tel Aviv. This is where his forgery begins to work. You see, he doesn't fly back as Naaman Diller. Instead, he uses a foolproof fake passport to travel to Tel Aviv under the alias Ned Lador. All official documentation in both Israel and the States shows that Naaman Diller is set to stay in New York until June. This forgery shows a level of dedication to crime that the police have rarely experienced. Diller's careful planning, thoughtful research, and creativity will baffle international police in the following months. April 15th, 1983. It's a quiet Friday evening in Tel Aviv, Israel. As usual, the upcoming Sabbath has closed shops early and emptied the streets of their regular throng of people. As the pale spring sun begins to set, 
a small Simca 1000 sedan drives quickly through the winding streets of Hapalmach. It rolls quietly along the cobbles, past the Israeli presidential residence, and stops outside of a tall, pink-bricked building, the L.A. Mayor Museum for Islamic Art. Naman Diller steps out of the tiny car. He's small and painfully thin, with dark brown hair and an angular face. Diller slowly reaches his hand through the bars of the museum's iron gate and waves up and down. He believes that the alarm system is down tonight, but needs to double-check before beginning his heist. As his movement causes no sound, he breathes a sigh of relief. The alarms aren't working. Filled with renewed confidence, Diller takes a jack from his car and pulls the bars apart just a fraction. Next, he takes a ladder, a satchel full of tools, and a rolled-up mattress. He pushes them through the bars and his thin body follows. Diller quietly steps towards the tiny window that glistens feet above him. With his mattress under one arm and a bag thrown over his narrow shoulders, he scales up the ladder with agility and prizes the window open using a screwdriver. Although the window's minuscule, Diller is prepared. Having lost 10 pounds since January, he knows that his frame is just about thin enough to slip through. So he throws the mattress down and slithers in behind. The dark room he lands in is exactly how he remembers. Vast wooden floors with high ceilings, glass cabinets protecting rows upon rows of priceless timepieces. The familiar room gleams in front of him, illuminated by moonlight pouring in from the window. Diller lifts a microphone from his bag and slides it against the room's door. He'll use this to catch any sounds of movement from the guards so that he can make a quick escape if necessary. Turning the microphone on and attaching his headphones, he gets to work. Diller deftly carves into the glass cabinets using his diamond cutter and reaches in greedily to extract his desired objects. He makes his way through most of the cabinets in the room sensitively placing the artifacts in cardboard boxes and piling them up against the wall. He soon reaches the grand prize. In the middle of the room, surrounded by no other timepieces, is the queen. Marie Antoinette's golden pocket watch glitters irresistibly in front of him, its rubies and sapphires spilling color into the dark room. Nervously, he reaches in and lifts the pocket watch from its shelf. He perhaps expects it to have its own alarm system or reinforced glass, but there's no added protection and Diller places the watch into a box. After hours of careful, tiring work, Diller stops. It's almost dawn and his stack of golden goods is steadily climbing up to the window. But before he leaves, Diller remembers the last stage of his plan. From within his bag, he produces handfuls of litter that he's collected from all over Tel Aviv. Old Coca-Cola cans, empty sweet wrappers, discarded cigarette cases. He litters them around the room, deliberately creating evidence to mislead the police. Then he scoops up an armful of his goods and makes the first of many journeys from the window to his car. He abandons the glass cutter, microphone, and headphones leaving them strewn across the museum's littered floor. 
Once the stolen timepieces are safely stowed in the sedan, Diller removes his ladder and starts the engine. Then, he drives into Jerusalem's early dawn light and steals away into oblivion. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In the years following the watch heist, Naman Diller leads a relatively quiet life. Although he commits small robberies and petty crimes, Diller manages to stay out of jail. This may be due to the fact that he uses a variety of different aliases, careful not to arouse suspicion that could tie him to the watch heist. In the 1990s, he meets Neil Shamrat, a childhood friend from Tel Aviv with whom he lost contact after she moved to the U.S. The two rekindle their friendship and it gradually turns into a romantic relationship. But despite their growing love for each other, they remain on different continents. Shamrat adamantly stays in the U.S. while Diller continues his life in Israel. The two maintain a long-distance relationship, one that's dependent on telephone calls and letter writing. In such a distant partnership, they find it easy to keep secrets from each other. Secrets such as Diller's million-dollar heist and collection of stolen timepieces. The couple get married in a small ceremony in Tel Aviv on April 15, 2003. It's perhaps a coincidence that Diller chooses to marry Shamrat on the 20th anniversary of the heist. Or maybe he enjoys the clandestine knowledge that this date is special to him for more than one reason. But their marriage is over almost as soon as it begins. In the summer of 2003, Diller is diagnosed with skin cancer. When he refuses radiation treatment, he's hospitalized and preparations are made for end-of-life care. In 2004, after just one year of marriage, Shamrat sits beside her husband's bed as he slowly passes away. But before he dies, he'll utter a confession that will change everything. California, 2010. Reporters, photographers, and angry crowds swarm outside a small Californian courtroom as Nils Shamrat is ushered through with a group of lawyers. 
She's on trial today for being in possession of the stolen timepieces from the L.A. Mayor Museum, and the entire world is waiting to find out her part in the heist. Israeli police have demanded she be extradited to Israel where she'll most likely be prosecuted as an accomplice to Diller. But fortunately for Shamrat, her U.S. citizenship guarantees a fair trial in America. Once on the stand, Shamrat attempts to appeal to the jury's sympathies by painting herself as a tragic victim of circumstance. She swears that she knew nothing about the stolen timepieces until her husband's deathbed confession. As she and Diller spent much of their marriage living in separate countries, it's highly likely he kept numerous secrets from her. She laments to the jury how the reveal of the heist has ruined her life. She's been fired from her beloved teaching position, receives hate and accusations from strangers, has had her entire house searched by armed officers, all whilst mourning the loss of her husband. Shamrat's argument is convincing, and many members of the jury view her as a tragic widow who has inherited a scandal through no fault of her own. But there's one question that she cannot answer. If she really is a law-abiding citizen who was horrified by her husband's grand heist, why did she sell the timepieces back to the Mayer Museum? Why didn't she return them for free? It's a question that Shamrat answers with silence. Even if she hadn't participated in the initial heist, her failure to honestly return the timepieces to the museum after Diller's death immediately incriminates her. But despite her inability to answer this controversial question, the judge seems to sympathize with her situation. The court rules that Shamrat was a victim of circumstance. However, for receiving the stolen property, she's given five years of probation and 300 hours of community service. Despite Diller's confession and Shamrat's trial, one question still remains about the infamous heist. Why did Diller do it? When police and detectives trace the missing timepieces, they discover that only 10 have been sold. Clearly then, money wasn't his motive. The sale of less than 10% of the stolen haul may have been purely due to their reputations. Many of the timepieces are internationally famous and would have been instantly recognized by art dealers and antique lovers throughout the world. It would have taken just one sighting to turn Diller in to the police. However, the black market for art is a billion-dollar industry. With over 50,000 stolen items for sale each year, many of which are globally renowned, it's a reliable method to transform thieves into millionaires. If money had been his motive, Diller would surely have tried his hand at art's black market. Could Diller's theft and subsequent possession have been for another reason entirely? Perhaps this unorthodox thief was motivated by a genuine passion and love for the timepieces. You see, when police recover the stolen artifacts, they don't find the usual careless treatment and abandon they expect from thieves. Instead, each timepiece has been carefully wrapped in paper and stored neatly in small cardboard boxes, away from direct sunlight and out of damp conditions. They've also been left with short handwritten notes by Diller. His scrawny writing explains the unique science behind each individual clock, 
how to wind them up, change their time, take them apart and reconstruct them. Their condition has not been damaged at all since leaving the museum. This caring, delicate treatment hardly seems like the work of a thief. Is it possible that Diller was in fact a watch aficionado? Although Shamrat returned over half of the stolen timepieces, including the queen, detectives are determined to retrieve the rest after her trial. They follow any leads they can. Places Diller's passport shows him to have visited, antique stores in obscure parts of the world, black market locations with traces of stolen art. Then, in 2011, police make a breakthrough. When relatives hand over documents that once belonged to Diller, bank statements, credit scores, receipts, a paper trail forms. It shows that Diller had business in a selection of banks all across Europe. Police visit these banks and discover many of the stolen timepieces. A handful are found in The Hague, Munich, and Basel, while many are retrieved from Paris. But the chase isn't over yet. Diller sold the 10 missing timepieces at various auctions throughout his life. There are no records of their sales or traces of them at any of Diller's known locations. Almost 40 years after their disappearance, the conditions, whereabouts, and owners of the remaining 10 timepieces remain unsolved. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Joseph Douglas, a career criminal looking to make a fast buck. He'll try his hand at anything he thinks he can get away with, but the biggest crime he confesses to is one that shocked the nation. The kidnapping of four-year-old Charlie Ross in broad daylight from outside his own house led to a nationwide hunt. It quite literally changed the law of the land and marked the end of a more innocent time where parents weren't afraid to let their kids play outside alone. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 